There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast for episode 101. Greg, we finished episode 100 we two did. weeks ago. That's right. Now, I have to apologize. We, we ended up taking a week off because after we finished episode 100, I guess we just, we were celebrating. Well, I guess we were really tired after doing 100 podcasts. Well, is, I mean, I think it's a pretty good feat. Like we did 100 podcasts in 103 weeks. Yep. So we took off a week for Christmas each year or, or for the season holidays, I guess. Maybe yep. not specifically Christmas, but, and then one extra week last week. So, so I'm pretty proud of that feat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Now the question I get, and I'm sure you've had this one too, Greg, is people ask me, once you've done 100 episodes, you must run out of things to talk about. And of course, the answer is always no, right? That's right. I mean, there's always something going on in markets and in life. We finished the last episode where we talked about the stock market being down and the bond market being down at the same time, yep. which is not typically normal, I would say, right? That's right. But it happens from time to time. So today we're going to carry on some of that conversation and talk about volatility because I know we've talked about volatility recently, but it remains present and it needs to be addressed. Like, Greg, last week when the Fed raised interest rates by 0.5% in the U.S., the U.S. Yep. markets rose by something like 3 to 4% that day. That's right. The Dow Jones was up almost 1,000 points. Yeah. Yep. And then the next morning when the Dow Jones opened up, it opened up down 3 to 4% that day. So that's a lot of volatility. You bet. Right? Like 6 to 8% swings in... 24 hours. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I guess we got to talk about like, Greg, how volatility is measured in markets and, and what can we do about it? Right? Yeah. Right on. So let's start by talking about the VIX. Well, what's the VIX you may ask? Okay. What's the VIX? Oh, glad you asked. <laughs> so the VIX or the CBOE. So just CBOE is the Chicago board options exchange. Yeah. And that exchange created something called the volatility index, which is a real-time index that represents the market expectations for the relative strength of near-term price changes in the S&P 500 index. And because it's derived from the prices of the S&P 500 index options, it generates a 30-day forward projection of volatility. So volatility or how fast prices change is often seen as a way to gauge market sentiment, and in particular, the degree of fear among market participants, because what we see is when the volatility index goes up, mm -hmm. typically that's accompanying stocks selling off. Yeah, no, volatility is interesting because nobody ever complains about upside volatility. Exactly. Right? Only exactly. downside volatility. That's right. Yeah. So the index itself is commonly known by its ticker symbol, which I said VIX, V-I-X, is the ticker symbol on the U.S. Yep. And it's created and maintained by the CBOE Global Markets. And it's an important index in the world of trading because it does provide that quantifiable measure of market risk and investor sentiments. So what it's doing is measuring the magnitude of price movements in the S&P 500. 
and the more dramatic the price swings are on the index, the higher the level of volatility and vice versa. And so in addition to actually being an index, which allows you to measure volatility, traders actually trade VIX futures options and ETFs to hedge or speculate on volatility changes in the index. So typical in this industry, mm -hmm. anything that trades, you know, somebody wants to make a derivative and trade the derivatives and, and things like options or futures contracts are derivatives. Well, and that's where it starts to remind me of Las Vegas. It's one thing to buy stocks or bonds or ETFs of stocks and bonds, right? Right. But when you start talking about puts and calls and, and leveraged ETFs and derivatives of other securities, that's usually speculation, right? That's right. It, which is speculation is like gambling, right? That's right. So the VIX is just measuring the volatility of the market and then people are trading based on what they think that volatility will be. Exactly. And, and listen, a lot of these derivatives can be used in a conservative way to actually hedge a portfolio against, against risk or mm -hmm. against unexpected volatility. But again, that's something for more professional traders to think about, not for average investors like us. Like we're, we're not recommending people do this? No. No. Okay. Not at all. Yeah. So in general, volatility can be measured using two different methods. The first method, based on historical volatility, uses statistical calculations on previous prices over a specific time period. And we've talked about this in some recent podcasts. Mm -hmm. We've talked about standard deviation and things like that. And I'm going to talk about that again. Exactly. Because the process that we're talking about, looking at historical volatility, involves looking at various statistical numbers like mean or average, variance, you know, and finally standard deviation of historical price data sets. And so that's the historical approach. And then, of course, the VIX or uh, the volatility index being the forward-looking. So mm -hmm. just for example, you know, we talked about how volatile the market was last week. So on May 3rd, 2021, so looking back a year, the VIX was 16.69. And on May 3rd of 2022, a year later, the VIX was 29.25, which is a 75% increase in volatility. And that just, that just highlights how things can change. And of course, when you look at the market action, it's being reflected there. Well, you can see it because when we say the market, I guess for this episode and for others, we typically are talking about the S&P 500. That's right. And it's not because we think that the S&P 500 is the market. It's just, it's the largest representation of the free world market. For sure. Right? It doesn't cover everything, but no. it's easy to get data on. And That's right. And, and it's a benchmark for many, many equity portfolios. Yeah. And actually, wrongly, there's a lot of portfolios out there that are not 100% equities that end up getting benchmarked against the S&P 500. True. I think that's another show we can talk about. But for today's discussion about volatility, so you talked about the VIX, and I want to talk specifically about volatility in stocks and the stock market. And as you mentioned, standard deviation we use to measure volatility volatility in a stock and in the stock market because it measures the dispersion of returns. And I know we've talked about standard deviation in the past and the historical standard deviation on the S&P 500 is 15. Okay? okay. So just keep that number in mind. So 15, what does that mean in English? Well, the S&P 500, I didn't realize this, was created in 1957. Did you know that? I did not. I thought it was like 1928 for some reason. Yeah. But anyways, 1957, or so the data is that I found. The average return on the S&P 500 from 1957 to 2021, inclusive, was 10.5% per year. Pretty good. 
That's pretty good. I think most investors, if they said, hey, I'm going to get for, how many years is that? 54 years? Or is my math wrong there? 44? Uh, no, no, that's going to be uh, 65 years. Jeez. I don't want to admit on this that I just screwed up some math. (laughs) (laughs) I'm usually pretty good at math. It's hard to do that in your head. (laughs) Anyways, for let's say six decades, if somebody said, hey, for the next six decades, you're going to get 10.5% a year. I think most investors would be like, yeah, bring it. All in. Yeah, 100%. But if I said the standard deviation on that 10.5% per year is 15. So what does that mean in English? It means that if we think of a bell curve, a distribution curve, and in that distribution curve, you've got the middle, right? Yep. That being the the median, mm-hmm. the average, right? Yep. The average return. Yep. Well, within 15 percentage points to either side is called one standard deviation. Right. Right? Within 15 percentage more points to either side is two standard deviations. Yep. And so on and so forth, right? So if the average return was 10.5% a year, then I know, mathematically speaking, that 68% of the time, the S&P 500 will return somewhere between negative 45 and positive 25.5% per year. Quite a range. It's 30% range. 30% spread because, as I said, standard deviation is 15, right? So yep. if the average is 10.5, you just go 10.5 minus 15.5 or 10.5 plus 15.5, mm-hmm. right? That's where the numbers come from. Yep. So carrying on that thought, if I go out two standard deviations, so that's, again, a further minus 15% or an additional plus 15%, mm-hmm. within two standard deviations, 95% of the time, the S&P 500 will return between negative 19.5% and 40.5%. Yep. That's a bigger spread. That's a pretty big range. But- it gives us probability, right? It That's says right. 95% of the time, it's going to return somewhere in that number. However, what those numbers don't show, so three standard deviations away. So if we go three standard deviations away, which will occur less than 2.5% of the time, right? 2.5% yep. of the time down, 2.5% of the time up. It means you could have somewhere between a negative 34.5% return and a positive 55.5% return. Mm-hmm. So why am I going on and on about this? Because the S&P 500 currently is returning something around, I don't know, negative 12 and a half or 13%, right? Yep. So if we look at that math, well, that's within two standard deviations, Yeah. right? So that's not that crazy to think about. Not at all. Right? What would be crazier is if we were three standard deviations away. Well, and, and actually, when you think about it, you know, it's it's one of those things that, you don't expect because we're talking about probabilities. So there's only two and a half percent, less than a two and a half percent probability of the return being more than two standard deviations below below the average. Yeah. And yet you go back to 2008. Happened. I think the market was down 38%. So in that year, I mean, it was down 50% top to bottom. Yeah. But during the calendar year 2008, the S&P 500 was down 38%. Yeah. So just because things are unlikely doesn't mean that they won't happen. And in fact, it doesn't mean that they won't happen twice in some relatively short period of time. It's just probability, which we keep we keep coming back to. Yeah. And just like anybody that lives in Calgary, you know, we I think we had two one in a hundred year floods in a period of about five years apart. No, no, we had the one in four hundred year flood. Oh yes. Followed by the one in fifty year flood. Right. 
Yeah. Same thing. Exactly. So you can get these unlikely events at random times. And that's just what everybody needs to understand about volatility and Mm -hmm. probability. Right. Because it's not that it doesn't, like it feels awful to me too, right? Like when I look at portfolios, my own and our clients, and we see negative returns, naturally it doesn't feel good. Right. Right. But again, going back to the beginning of that discussion, if I said, yeah, but... For the next six decades, you're going to have positive returns of 10.5% per year on average. Most people would say that's pretty good. Yep. Right? Yep, exactly. So that's stocks and stock market volatility. But I mean, this also plays out in bonds, right, Greg? It does. You know, and one of the things, and we've done a couple of episodes on this topic in the last month or so, is that you can see volatility in bonds as well. I mean, bonds are marketable securities. And by being marketable, it means they trade every day and 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 bonds don't just go up all the time either. And so there is volatility in bond. And so the problem happens, you know, when stocks perform poorly and when bonds perform poorly as well. And so, and that's a situation that we're going right down to because normally with stocks and bonds over longer periods of time, and now I'm talking about not 10 year periods, I'm talking about one to two year periods in the bond market. Usually if stocks are doing extremely poorly, then bonds can do better and soften the blow of those. And we've seen that time and again. But right now we're looking at a period where we're both stocks and bonds are going down somewhat. And a bunch of reasons that we've talked about bond market performing the way it is because of inflation or current interest rate hikes and those kinds of things which impact bond prices. But what is the standard deviation of bonds, you know, compared to stocks? Because it's, again, standard deviation is just a dispersion. It's just right? a dispersion. This is just historical. How have bonds performed and how has their performance or returns compared to the mean or the average over a long period of time. Yeah. So we're going to take a look at the iShares, the aggregate bond index, which is basically, this is the U.S. aggregate bond index, which is just a representation of all of the bonds that trade in the U.S. market. And when you look at the volatility or the standard deviation of bonds in the U.S. aggregate, it's been 3.24 over the last 10 years. Right. And so compare that to stocks, which have 15. 15%. Yeah. So the average return for the time period that we're talking about the last 10 years is about 3%. And when you look at what's going on with the U.S. aggregate bond index right now, the ETF is showing a negative return year to date of around 8.95%, which is a massive drawdown in bond world. There are bond traders jumping out of windows as we speak. Well, because that's, that's almost three standard deviations away. That's right. Right? That's right. And so the likelihood of that event being three standard deviations is less than 2.5%, but that's exactly what's happening. So investors who are looking for safety in their bonds are not finding them right now, or they're not finding the safety to the level they expected, because 95% of the time it would have been a better result. Mm -hmm. So if you want to put it in context, though, in 2020, when the global stock markets were melting down due to COVID-19, AGG, the aggregate bond index returned 7.4%, which would have been two standard deviations away or a probability of that result occurring being about 95%. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's one of these things where certainly these probabilities can overlap and we're going through a a period of time right now like that. And I would argue, okay, people have used the word transitory to describe all kinds of things. Like inflation has been described as maybe it's transitory, right? right? Interest rate hikes, maybe it's transitory. I would argue this environment we're in right now where bonds are down and stocks are down is transitory, right? Yep. Like it's, it won't stay like that 
for perpetuity. It's exactly there's going to be some change. And in our last episode, we talked about how there's never been a recorded year where stocks and bonds have both recorded a negative number. Yep. So why would we expect this year to be that one? That's right. And right? as I've mentioned before, you know, when you look back to the 2008, you know, time frame, there was a period during 2008 where stocks and bonds were both down. But not for the, the whole same year. Time. But not for the whole year. In fact, in 2008, when stocks finished down 38%, bonds were up about 7% by the end of the year. Yeah. And so you can get these short-term drawdowns in any year, but it doesn't mean that's where the markets are going to end the end of the year. Right on. So there's a great article from Forbes on the subject, what do you do about it? There's an old saying on Wall Street that says, if you don't sell it, you haven't lost it. In other words, the value of your investments doesn't really matter until the day you need to cash out. So try not to worry about the ups and downs during the interim. And we, we, we talk about this a lot, you know, like losses on paper are not real losses. They're only real losses when you lock them in by selling something. But they feel crappy. They feel crappy. And when your portfolio is down some horrible number, you know, maybe 20% or even 30% of its value in a really bad stock market crash, it doesn't give you a lot of comfort. But at the same time, you need to understand that market crashes are inevitable. They hurt. And the thing is, you need to work out a strategy, ideally before something like that ever happens, Mm -hmm. a strategy to make the best of it. Yeah, let's talk about a few of those things. And I know a couple of weeks ago, we went through this lifeboat drill. Yep. I would encourage everybody to do one in whatever it is, right? right so right on. whether it's their investments or their house yep. or their marriage, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe I should bring that one up. But, uh, you know, like it, let's just stick to investments anyways. So subject for a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> one with people talking that wouldn't be you and me. Hopefully right. they would be trained professionals <laughs> Train counselors. Anyways, but the lifeboat drill was a drill, and I can't remember what it was called. What was the other term for it? It was a mustard drill? Mustard drill, I think. Something like that. Yeah, where, you know, like cruise lines need to know what to do in the event of a boat going down, right? Mm-hmm. Like how to deal with it in an orderly fashion. So it's kind of the same thing with investments, right? Like, mm-hmm. as you said, you haven't lost a dime until you've actually sold. Right. Right? And the minute you sell... And this is where I think people get it wrong. They sell because they want to protect, right? Like I don't want to lose anymore. I want to protect. Mm -hmm. But then they sell and then they don't know when to get back in because it's really hard to time those markets. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so by the time they're ready to get back in, the market may have already already fully recovered or recovered to a point where now they, they feel like, oh, I can't get in now. That's right. Right? Yeah. Well, because there's this sense, well, I just don't feel comfortable about the market right now. When I'm feeling better about things, then yeah. I'll get back in. And you, generally, you feel better about things when everything's gone up. Yeah. I had somebody go through this with me. They said, I want to sell out. This was a few years ago during another crisis. I want to sell out because I want to wait till things get better. And mm-hmm. I said to them, so you want to sell out now when things are low so that you can buy back in later when they're higher. Right. That doesn't sell, make sense. Sell low, buy high. Yeah. That does not make sense. Okay, so let's go through what, what you and I both think people should do. Number one is to do nothing during right. a market crash. This yeah. is probably the hardest thing to do, by the way, right? Like ignoring the headlines and just, just sitting still, yep. right? So if you believe in your investing strategy and your current portfolio assets, I mean, there's really no reason to change your plans unless you have a good reason. Because when you bought those assets based on the plan that you'd done, it was done with reason, right? Yep. 
So nothing's really changed. Like, like okay, Russia invaded Ukraine. Yes, that's an, a major event. Mm-hmm. But when you purchased those investment assets, you didn't price that in, right? No. So why would you price it in now? Yep. Right? So, so people who panic sell during a crisis often regret that choice. I mean, take those who jumped ship back in, as you mentioned, spring of 2020. I mean, back then the S&P 500 fell by more than 30% in like two weeks, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was like a cliff. And, you know, by the summer of 2020, people were regretting their moves as the market had recovered. I can't remember if it had fully recovered, but it had gone up a lot, right? that's right. And so only those that stayed the course actually made back that that amount in that time. No, exactly. So, yeah, and the other thing to remember, and, and it's important that you have to believe, but I mean, every bear market in history has eventually been erased by subsequent gains in the market. Yeah. So if you're a student of history, you can at least have a belief. It's not a guarantee, you know, that you're going to recover your money by just waiting it out. Mm-hmm. But you just know that it has always happened in the past that you've recovered your money by waiting it out. I like that scene, and I don't remember who said it. It's like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme. It rhymes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, the second thing you can do during a, I don't know, should we be calling it a market crash, or let's just call it a bear market? It sounds a little soft. Correction. A correction, a big correction. Yeah. Crash just sounds so like like you're going to lose your life. Yeah, I know. It's an aggressive kind yeah. of sounding word. Yeah. Okay. Well, bear markets can often be the result of, of you know certain events like the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic or the news that the Federal Reserve is going to change its monetary policy. And what happens is, and this makes matters worse sometimes, is that you get rapid market declines that trigger some forced trade. Like there could be aggressive speculators who have borrowed money to invest and there they might be subject to margin calls and are forced to liquidate their stock holdings. And so you end up getting this this cascading of selling going on. So the so some selling can trigger a lot more. But the thing to think about is that a bear market can create opportunities, you know, for people that are willing to hold their nose and jump in. Because there may be some some stocks or some markets in general that are just you've been watching and felt that, oh, it's too expensive to buy in. Mm-hmm. And now prices, if they're down 20, 25, 30%, you can go on a buying spree. Things are on sale. And you've certainly improved your chances of, of having a, a more reasonable or a stronger return when the markets do recover over time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's lots of ways to do it. You know, some people will just dive in at a point in time and other people will start buying in regularly. Now you're talking about item number three, which is dollar cost average. Sure. That's buying in regularly. Yeah. Right? And it's just, it's just kind of an acknowledgement that you never know exactly where the bottom is. Or the top. Or the top. So you just yeah. keep buying and hope that eventually things will go up. Yeah. So as you said, stay the course was number one. Go shopping, number two. Yep. Number three is dollar cost average, which is done on the way up and on the way down, yep. right? So yep. when the market's in turmoil, the safest way, as you mentioned, to go on a buying spree is to dollar cost average your purchases. So what does that mean? It just means regularly buying investments at regular times. Yep. Right? So instead of saying, I'm going to invest in them when the market's way up or when the market's way down, it's like, I'm going to invest in them on the first of every month or every three months on the 15th or whatever that is. But it tends to smooth out the ups and downs by doing those purchases over a long period of time. 
And I'm a big subscriber to this, right? Well, and it actually highlights, you know, the issue of, you know, everybody loves it when the stock market goes up or when Mm -hmm. their investments go up in value, whether it's stocks or bonds. But really, if you're a net investor, meaning that if you have money to invest and you have money to invest every year through savings or whatever, then bear markets should be the time when we're most enthusiastic, Yeah. right? Because when you're buying, you'd like, things to be cheap. And it's only when you're selling that you'd like the markets to be high. So if you're a net buyer of securities, you should be delighted when the markets go down because they give you the opportunity to buy at lower prices. Yeah. So, so dollar cost averaging basically is an acknowledgement that, well, I have no idea whether the markets are going to go up or whether they're going to go down, but I'll be delighted in either scenario because if the market goes up from here, then the money I've already invested is growing and that's a good that's a good news story. And if the markets go down from here, then my next purchase is going to be at lower prices, which is also good news. Yeah. So it's a good way to take that pressure off yourself about, well, is now a good time or if I buy when things are down twenty percent, what if they go down another five percent? Boy, I'll really be upset. Well no you won't because you're gonna buy some more mm-hmm. when they're down twenty five percent as well. So logistically the best way to do that is by setting up a pre-authorized contribution. Yep. You can do that in a non-registered account, but I mean, this makes a lot of sense for RSP accounts sure. or TFSA accounts, yep. right? And you're just putting some amount away each month or week or yep, whatever frequency you've, you've chosen. Yes. And it's just buying a number of units or shares each time, right? It's a good argument actually for tax-free savings accounts to just, rather than, you know, some people will drop $6,000 in you know, at the beginning of the year and, and other people might contribute 500 a month. And, you know, 500 a month is not a bad way to go. Well, no, because 500 times 12 is 6,000. Exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just do that in your head? (laughs) Okay. The other thing you can do during a stock market downturn is to look at bonds, you know, Mm -hmm. which we've been talking about. And often during a downturn, when you look at what happens in certain parts of the bond market, government bonds are sometimes a great way to invest because government bonds, particularly in a bad stock market, are seen as a safe haven. Mm-hmm. And so you very often you'll see as, as stocks go down, government bonds go up. Now, this year is, again, as we've talked about many times, government bonds have not performed that well at the beginning of this year. And that's just because there's this confluence of things like inflation, interest rates going up, etc. But dollars to donuts whatever that means. I don't know what that means, but you do tend to say it. What does dollars to donuts mean? I have no idea. Like it costs so many dollars to buy a donut? I don't know. It's, I I don't even know why I said it. convert dollars to donuts? I have no idea why I said that. But uh, anyway, my guess would be that if the stock market correction, you know, really takes hold and turns into a serious bear market, you know, down 20% or more, they will start to see a bit of a reversal and will start to see government bonds go up in value. Am I guaranteeing that? Absolutely not. Well, you could. Yeah, well, but I, I, I might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no, but again, there is, you know, I don't think anyone can dispute the flight to safety that stock investors will look for when, when things go bad. So, so we've talked about buying more stocks dollar, through dollar cost averaging. You can buy bonds. What else can you do? Well, you could do something with your taxes. You could sell some things that are at losses to crystallize some capital gains. Now, in this case, you are, like we mentioned earlier, like you haven't created a loss until you've sold something. Yep. 
But in this example, you are creating that loss, right? So if you have like capital gains outstanding that you're going to have to pay income tax on, yep. well, you could sell something that's trading at a loss and crystallize a loss and then offset the gain with part of that loss. So mm-hmm. I'm not a, a huge proponent of that one in a long period of time of being invested, but sometimes it makes sense to do that. Well, and I think... I've done this for myself and and clients as well. Sometimes it creates the opportunity to create a loss for tax purposes, but to stay in the the asset class by just replacing whatever you've sold with a similar type of investment. Yeah. So for instance, if you sell a mutual fund, a broadly diversified mutual fund and triggered a loss, you can replace it with another similar fund or an index fund that tracks the you know, tracks the market as a whole. And as long as you hold that for more than 30 days, then you can claim the loss on income taxes. And so it's an opportunity to create capital losses, which can be applied against future gains or previous gains back three years, and still maintain your exposure to that market. And so you are not missing out when things get, you know, things improve. Well, in some cases, you can actually sell a mutual fund of something yep, and you could purchase an exchange traded fund of the exact same security. Exactly. And you end up creating a capital loss, but still being invested in essentially the same thing. And I think that's the secret. The secret is to not be, we're not recommending people sell out and get out and wait in the sidelines, so to yeah. speak. We're recommending that if people do sell, do it in a tax efficient way and take advantages of those, those opportunities. Yep. Right on. So there's one thing that does create some concerns among a certain group of investors, and those are the people that are retiring soon or have just retired. Mm -hmm. And certainly going through a stock market, bear market, can be very difficult for, for those people. But there's ways around it. One is to prepare well in advance and, you know, through planning. And so as we've talked many times when we're doing financial planning, if you know you plan to retire in a couple of years, then you may want to adjust your portfolio so it's possibly less volatile mm-hmm. in case of a, a market downturn or something that you, you can't predict. Couldn't you also adjust your expenses too, though? Absolutely, you could. And yeah. the other thing too is if you're using your investments now to provide income, then it's highly likely that not all of your portfolio was down at the same time. And of course, you can use better performing asset classes, whether it's your bonds or or some cash investments, as a source of cash and income mm-hmm. until the markets recover. Well, I got a good example of that. So we've done our rebalancing back in April of yep. our, our quarterly discretionary accounts. Yep. In April, the stock market was down, the bond market was down. And as I'm rebalancing, there's one asset class that we hold that actually had quite a healthy return. And that was global commercial real estate. Yep. So even for people that needed cash withdrawals, there's still a place to take it from, an asset sector yep. to take it from without creating a capital loss. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Right so again, I think in, in, in that last subject, just to reiterate, you know, build it into your plan. Because planning is the basis for all of the investment decisions we make. Plan ahead and it won't, you know, it won't come as a huge shock and it won't you won't be unprepared. Dollars to donuts. You heard it Dollars here first. Dollars to donuts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I well, think we should wrap it up there. We will. And next time we'll, we'll identify what dollars to donuts actually means. Oh, don't, don't commit us to something we're not prepared to look into. No, I'm prepared to look into okay, it. Okay. You look into it. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time on the free lunch. See you next time. 
thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.